0: So as we take a look at these words on the surface you may have a first impression pastor cook what in the world do a bunch of laws that are outdated arcane having to do with cleanliness and dietary stuff probably from the book of leviticus that i probably don't read at all because it doesn't apply to me at all. How in the world is such a thing relevant for me in my life today and what benefit am I going to get out of it at this time and for my week and for the rest of my life? And I can completely understand where you'd be coming from because at the first look at this, this just seems like something that just does not apply to any of us today. Can we just go on with verse 24 and start there maybe perhaps? But when you dive into these words, these words have a profound meaning and teaching for our lives. Whether you are someone who is on the end of the spectrum where you love God and you're so religious that your worst nightmare would be, I missed a worship service, to whether you are someone on the other end of that spectrum, maybe saying, I'm Not really a Christian, not really into this whole Christianity thing, and I I, I really don't know how it's going to be beneficial for me. And anywhere in between, these words apply to you. These words have meaning to you. These words have value to you. Because what Jesus is going to hit on today is a universal need that we all have. And then he dives into the way that we're all by default prone to attack that need and try to solve that need and shows how it never ever works and then he's going to show us the proper real solution the only solution that does work and in order to get all of that out of it what we have to do is we have to dive into some of these issues that the pharisees had with jesus and the subsequent issue jesus had with the pharisees and it has everything to do with the issue they bring towards jesus about these dietary laws these cleanliness restrictions, they get upset with Jesus because he is allowing his disciples to eat food with defiled hands, that is, as Mark tells us, unwashed hands. They didn't do a ceremonial ritualistic washing, and therefore they might be unclean. And that was a a big deal in the day. And and because Mark is writing to a non-Jewish audience, that is Gentiles, it's helpful for us because we two Gentiles, we don't quite understand every single thing that they practice. So Mark gives us a little bit of commentary and insight. He says that, now the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, which by the way, at the end of chapter 6, that's exactly where Jesus and his disciples have just come from, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups pitchers and kettles. One commentator even notes, he says about this, um, that the Jews, uh, if a shadow of a Gentile falling across a dish or a plate, well, guess what? That, that dish, that plate is now considered unclean. Okay, what's the big deal about being unclean? Well, for the Jew, it was a huge deal. Because if you were unclean, that meant you could not worship God In the temple, you cannot enter the sanctuary, the the tabernacle presence, you cannot be with the community of God until you were clean. It was a huge deal and especially in a crowded place like the marketplace, if your hands perhaps maybe touch something that was defiled, that was unclean, then your hands would be unclean. And then if you were going to eat, then, then your hands touched food that then went inside you. And guess what? You're now unclean and you can't worship. And so they said, okay, we have all these washings that we're doing to make sure that that doesn't happen to us. And not just the washing of our hands, but the washing of our eating utensils, if you will just to make sure we stay clean. So it makes sense then, in verse 5, they would say, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands, unwashed hands? And it seems to be pretty logical, except there's just one problem. You notice what they said, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders. Because what Mark wants to make sure his audience understands loud and clear is that if you were to read the Old Testament, the Torah, the Law and the Prophets, and you were to try to word search, if you will, uh, what what God has to say about ritualistic hand-washing, ceremonial hand-washing, what you would see is that he says very little about it. And what he does have to say about it is very nuanced to a specific audience, the Levites and the priests. That is, the the people who were the temple servants, sacrificing, making these sacrifices to God. God gave them specifically certain ritualistic washings to make sure that they were clean before God as they served God, not all the Jews, as Mark points out. So what happened? How did we get to a point where all of the Jews were doing these things? And what happened is over the years, you had rabbis who had a very high view and high respect for God's word, so much so that they wanted to make sure that they kept it pure and holy and didn't defile God's word. And as they looked at it, they said, you know, If this ritualistic washing is good enough for the priests, don't you think it would be good for all of us to do? And if it's not just good enough for all of us to do on just maybe like certain holy events, maybe it's good enough for all of us to do it on any sort of occasion. Like say, every time we're about to eat some food. And you know what? If it's good enough for us washing our hands, well then maybe it's good enough for us also to wash like the things that we eat, you know, plates and cups and spoons and silverware and all of that kind of stuff. And so what they did was they ended up putting a fence around God's word with all of these extra rules, all of these extra interpretations, all these extra applications that rabbis over the years had come up with, and it was called the tradition of the elders. Over 600 man-made applications, rules, interpretations – that the Jews were expected to follow. Any Jew worth their salt would know what these rules say and would abide by them because we got to make sure that there's no gray area with God's word. We want to make sure everything is black and white. And so the question that they ask Jesus here isn't so much a question as it is an insinuation against Jesus. Jesus, why don't you do this clearly, Jesus, you don't care about the holiness of God. Clearly, Jesus, you're being really irreverent. What kind of a, what kind of a rabbi are you when you allow people to just be so willy-nilly and laissez faire about all of this tradition of the elders? What kind of a Jew do you think you are? And that's when Jesus flips their entire attack on them. You have let go of the commands of God. And are holding on to human traditions, and then he gives another outdated, arcane thing that you've probably never seen before. A, an example of what's called Corbin, and I'll try to uh, simplify it to, to make have it make sense for you. The idea of Corbin was that you would basically devote something to God. So let's just say you have your assets, your wealth, your estate, and you're writing out your last will and testament. And you devote it to God, that is, you devote it to the church, the priests, the Pharisees, the temple. So that is now Corbin. All your stuff belongs there. But while you're still alive, you get to use it and enjoy it. But let's say mom and dad, as they got older and they can't work anymore, guess what? They need some help. And back then, there is no social security system. There are no government help programs. The kids were the, was the social security program. That's how you were taken care of. And God does have a thing. It's called one of his commandments, honor your father and mother. We call that the fourth commandment. And so he said, hey, son, we need you to help us out. And he would say, sorry, um, I would love to maybe be able to liquidate some of these assets and, and help you out, mom and dad, except the Pharisees are telling me it's Corbin. I already dedicated it to them. I can't touch it. Sorry, I know God's word says I'm supposed to help you out, but they're telling me I can't do anything. What do you want me to do? See, they didn't just elevate their traditions to God's word. They even took their traditions and superseded God's word to the point they wanted people to keep their traditions at the expense of even one of God's divine commandments. And you say, okay, a little clearer now. Thank you. I understand that. So what in the world does this have to do with me today? There's any number of applications I could start off with and and talk about how we do these similar things, but let me just share one, and I'll maybe exaggerate a little bit for dramatic effect, but let me use my own personal experience. Growing up, the church culture that I grew up in was a culture of your Sunday best. And what that meant to about eight nine ten year old little kendall cook was it was code for dress code in the church and for a little boy like me you know what that meant that meant dress shoes dress slacks dress shirt with probably a tie even if it was a clip-on tie and maybe you could coerce your mom to get away with loosening that top button not having to wear a tie maybe You could wear a polo as long as it was a nice polo, but it was definitely tucked in with a belt that was probably twice the size of your waist and you had to go around twice, right? That was probably what it was. But you know what I almost guarantee you was practically forbidden? Tennis shoes, jeans, shorts, a t-shirt. You would never wear that. And here was the logic. Kendall. Doesn't God deserve your absolute best? Yeah, I don't think I could argue with that, absolutely. And Kendall, if the President of the United States was going to visit you, then wouldn't you dress up and wear something nicer than just maybe some sandals, some tennis shoes, some shorts and a t-shirt? Well, yeah, I I guess if I was going to see the President, I'd probably think a little bit more about what I'm going to wear. And Kendall Isn't God more important than the President of the United States? Seems pretty hard to argue with any of that, right? And so the logical conclusion is God will be way more honored if you dress up nice for him as opposed to wearing some comfortable, casual clothes seems like some pretty airtight logic. Nothing little 10-year-old Kendall Cook is going to argue with that. There's just one problem with that logic. And you know what the problem is? It's not in the Bible. In fact, that kind of logic is the whole impetus for the Lutheran Reformation in the first place. Don't tell me something as if God himself said it when God said nothing about it. Don't tell me something as if it's got this divine authority and bind my conscience to it and make me feel guilty if I break it when God doesn't say a thing about it. And if you're thinking, okay, so the takeaway that I'm getting is Jesus is against tradition, not so fast. Jesus is not against tradition. Actually, if we had time, I could show you all these instances where Jesus actually carried out certain traditions that they had. Every single one of us has our own traditions, has our own practices. And the point of those traditions and practices is meant to be an aid for your faith. It's meant to be a servant for your faith, right? Meant to help you. Think about how you pray. I can almost guarantee you that the standard posture of 99% of us today, if not all of us, is this. We fold our hands to make sure that we're not distracted, and what do we do with our heads? Why do we do that? It's meant as an aid in prayer, as a sign of reverence, humility, respect when we come before God. Nothing wrong with that. Very helpful. Do you know what the tradition of prayer was for the Old and New Testament Christians? They wouldn't bow their heads and fold their hands, they would lift up their hands above their heads as a sign of praise and surrender and lifting everything up to you, God. My thoughts, my requests, my attitude, everything to you looks a whole lot different. It's just a description of what they did. God never says, thou must pray this way. And we have all sorts of traditions in a service like this, I dress up wearing an awl with a stole and vestments. And what's the purpose of that? Well, it's meant to, to get you to think about Christ, the white purity, the white robes that he dresses us with. But in our other services and in other churches, there's maybe a little bit of a dress down factor. And if you talk to those pastors and if you dive into the reasons and rationale for it, they have very good reasons and rationale. I'm trying to show that I'm not a holier-than-thou kind of person in case someone gets the wrong impression. I'm trying to show some solidarity that I'm just a sinner and saint just like everybody else. Neither one is right. Neither one is wrong. We do this with all kinds of things. The problem is not with tradition. The problem is with what you might call traditionalism. When we take our traditions... And we make someone feel guilty because they are not holding on to my traditions, my preferences, my way of doing things. That if someone shows up next to me in flip flops and a shirt and shorts, and I roll my eyes and just think, geez buddy, like, really? Come on. Like, don't you care about the holiness and respect of God? Don't you fear him? Don't you revere him? And just the exact opposite of that, by the way. If you're in a casual type setting and someone comes decked out in their Sunday best and they sit down, maybe they even cross themselves and before they talk or anything, they just bow their heads and have a prayer for for a couple minutes in the pew and you look over and you say, who's this stiff? Man, come on, this stuffy guy. Doesn't he care about the love of God at all? This guy's probably already judged me. And what are we doing? (laughs) We're already judging people based on our own traditions. You see how that's two exact sides of the same coin of traditionalism? Tradition makes a great servant, but it makes a terrible master. And tradition becomes toxic when we elevate our man-made traditions and turn them into God-made commandments. And bind people's consciences and make other people feel absolutely guilty for not holding on to what I'm doing. Do you realize what we're doing when we do that? We're doing the exact same thing the Pharisees are doing here. Taking our traditions, taking man-made rules, elevating them to the point of Scripture and beyond. And the question this forces us to wrestle with, every single one of us, as we think of, well, who does that? Or other church bodies and denominations that are way more guilty of that. That's natural. Hone it in. And ask yourself this question. Am I personally more concerned about external form and rightness and correctness than I am about the internal heart? Is a joke at the, the last thing a church says before it dies. But we've always done it this way! And they go away. And if you looked at the Christian landscape, you would see conservative, liberal churches that have beautiful buildings, familiar phrases, historic liturgies all the way around, But on the inside there has long since been any sort of spiritual life Christ-like love and attitude and gospel activity going on just like we see happening to the Jewish religion at this point and that's why Jesus response is so clear and so blunt Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites as it is written these people honor me with their lips But their hearts, the thing God wants, is far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Now, every time Jesus were to say this to the Pharisees, this is the kind of statement that got them ticked to the point where they wanted to kill him. And put yourself in the Pharisees' shoes. I know it's a little scary, but do that for just a second. Can you understand why they'd get so mad? What do you mean it's just lip service and our hearts are far from God? Show me anyone else in the entire Jewish nation who is more zealous for God's word. Show me anyone else who is more concerned about the integrity of God's word and keeping God's word and being obedient to all of his commands. How could you call us hypocrites, Jesus, when we look so zealous, when we are so zealous for the word? And that's actually a great point. And Jesus' answer to that has everything to do with not the what they were doing, all these tradition of the elders and, and elevating it to the authority of God Himself, but why? Why were they doing this? Why did they set up all these, why did they set up all these cleanly laws, dietary things, and, and add on to what Scripture had said? Why? And the answer is because you start to see that they saw the problem. That we all need to be clean. Jesus would have agreed. He would have agreed with the Pharisees. You're right. We all need to be clean before God. Where he disagreed with the Pharisees is the source of what defiles us and how to go about making ourselves clean. Which is why he says later on, listen, everyone, understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. All the Pharisees had seen this problem, and they said, it's an outside-in kind of a treatment. As long as we keep ourselves pure from anything going inside of us, we will stay clean. What, What makes us defiled before God is coming from the outside. And Jesus says, that is utter nonsense. That makes absolutely no sense that something from the outside comes in and defiles you. But this was so ingrained in their psyche, even his disciples said, Jesus, I don't get it. And so he explains. He says, Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't just go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. Literally, out into the latrine. If you wanted to put this in, in English terms, this would be Jesus as bluntly as saying, What you eat goes in at one end and out the other. That's as blunt as Jesus is being, but he's trying to make a point. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and all of those things. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. He said the source of what makes you unclean is not something outside that comes in. It's already inside. It's your heart the food that you're worried about contaminating you, that doesn't even touch your heart. Like, when you think about it, it literally doesn't make any sense. But for the Pharisees, they said, no, no, no. we got to make sure. we got to do all of these things to keep ourselves pure. We've got to add out all these rules. We've got to do all of these rituals, all of these ceremonies. And at the heart, do you know why they did this? At the heart of it all is what we call self-righteousness. This idea that I, by my doing, I, by my carrying this thing out, I can in some way contribute to my salvation or in the flavor of this text, I can in some way make myself clean and cleaner before God. And in the terms of us modern day people today, that I, by worshiping in this way, I, by looking this part, I, by carrying out my tradition, can in some way look better more clean to God and when someone else comes along and they're wearing something different worshiping in a different way doing something that is totally different than the tradition I grew up with well they're just a little bit less clean they're a little more defiled and what do we do do you see how we're ranking people? Do you see how we're judging people? Do you see how that self-righteousness wages war within us? And every now and then I'll get someone who says, well, I'm not really a tradition kind of person anyways. I, I really don't care. I'm not a judgmental person, Pastor. And I say, oh, so you're not judgy like those judgy people over there? See what she does this there? Every single one of us. Understands there is something inside of us that is not right. There is something defiled with us, and every single one of us has a battle with this self righteousness where we are trying to do any sort of thing we can to make ourselves clean and right. And it never works. And maybe you're saying to yourself, I don't know. Again, I'm not, I I could. Go either way with traditions. I just love God, but but I don't really have any sort of beef. I don't really have any sort of thing with all this religiosity kind of stuff. Okay. But understand, what we've been talking about, a religious tradition, that's just one way that we might try to go about making ourselves right and presentable. But there's a whole host of other ways that Christians are plagued by this. What do I mean? Why is it that some of us are so obsessed with beauty? Counting calories, working out to get the right physique, am I I slim enough as I look at myself in the mirror? Why is it that we're so obsessed with that? It's because some people think I've got to present myself in such a way that is so beautiful and so attractive that I can validate myself to the world because I feel inadequate. And that's why I'll take 20 selfies before I post or text a single one to my friend. And even then, I've got to make sure it's just right, and I let AI on my phone fix it for me. And then even still, I put a filter on it so it's even better, because I can't imagine someone seeing me with a bedhead or in my pajamas. Oh, there's a reason why they call it cover girl, right? It's meant to cover what's there, girl, right? Why do we do that? Because I've got to seem adequate. I've got to seem like I matter. I've got to validate my existence. I've got to present myself and make myself clean and right before other people. It never works. Talk to the most beautiful people in the world, supermodels, by their own admission. You know what you will find? They are the most insecure people about their looks. It never works. Why is it that some people are so driven and consumed by work, 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 work? What's driving that? And there's this thought, if I just get this degree, if I just get this title, if I get this promotion, if I climb the rank, if I get right here, then I can rest. Show me where that's happened. Show me where that's worked. Show me the person who says, okay, I've arrived and I don't need to. It doesn't happen. What's driving that? Why is it that some of us, our worst nightmare is letting someone down and so we will make sure we have no boundaries in our lives. We will say, yes, we are people pleaser all the way to the max. when we do let someone down and it's inevitably going to happen, it feels like a form of death. Why? What is behind that? Why is it that some of us are so afraid to let people see the real you? Why is it that some of us are so terrified of letting people in that we have to control exactly how much of the real us we see. And we always put this polished, varnished version of ourselves out there. In our growth groups. We have a, a principle about them. The real you, not the Facebook you. And yet, when I ask a question. Let's say we were talking about greed. And one of the questions the group leaders ask their groups is. So how have, has greed been uh, prevalent in your life? We're talking about idolatry. What are some idols that you've suffered from this week? You know what my group leaders consistently tell me on a regular basis? Yeah. Those questions, sometimes it's like I get crickets when I ask those questions. Why is that? Almost as if nobody struggles with those things, or maybe it's because we're afraid to let people see the real us, because if they saw the real us, then we wouldn't be lovable, we wouldn't be worthy. And so sometimes it's through religion, sometimes it's through beauty, family, friends, power, you name it. There are all sorts of things we are trying to validate our existence to the world, to everyone else, to God. We're trying so hard to clean ourselves. An outside-in approach. And it doesn't work. Or in the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. The problem is not anything outside of you. The problem is inside of you. The problem is you have a heart. And even worse still, the problem is you can do nothing to clean it. So what's the solution? And Mark alluded to it with a simple phrase that you'd probably skip over, but it's so impactful. Verse 19. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. That is a powerful statement. Because what Jesus was saying in the context here is this. All those cleanliness laws, the ritual cleanliness, the the dietary laws to keep you clean, you know what they were all meant to point you to? To foreshadow? The Messiah. The Christ. All pointing to him. In other words, what Mark is saying, what God is saying, is the way you are right and clean is not by any of your doings but it's by the doneness of Christ's work for you. And what was that work? Simply put, it's a heart transplant. You have a a defiled heart, you need a new heart, and you know how heart transplants work. One person dies, another person lives. One person, not intentionally, but accidentally has a death or somehow it comes about and every heart transplant is surrounded by this tragic, bitter death that leads to the sweet gift of new life for somebody else. And that's exactly what your Savior did for you. Or in the words of Ezekiel the prophet, i will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean i will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols i will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you i will remove from you your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh who does the cleansing god who does the purifying First John says the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Jesus says you want to be presentable before others. You want to be presentable before your God and clean. It doesn't happen by your doings. doesn't. By the blood that I poured out for you to make you clean. Like a good doctor, your Savior comes to you and he looks at your heart and says, if you do not have a new heart, you will die. But he's not just the doctor. He's the donor who says to you, here you go. Have mine. And by faith, the beating heart of Jesus Christ himself is in you right now. And you are clean and righteous before God. And in closing, I want you to let that truth reshape your perspective. If you are someone who maybe knows this truth, but but it's still, it's almost like it's not enough. You're still striving. You're still doing all these other things. I've got to have the status. I've got to have their approval. I've got to validate myself in some other way in life. And Jesus is saying... I'm the thing you're missing. And that restless voice that is just gnawing away in your life that you can't silence it, I can. Because I've already given you the greatest approval you could ever have to the only one who matters. If there's a part of you today that says, I know this truth, but you know, I still feel so guilty and so burdened by this thing I did or didn't do, then Jesus says, I have forgiven it. As far as the east is from the west, I have cleaned your heart. I have removed it. It is no more. Be at peace because it is well with your soul. Because I say it is well with your soul. If you are someone who has been burdened by all these religious doings and things that you grew up with or, or things that you were constantly doing and you're you're constantly feeling pressured, and you would have to say it's not out of desire or want, but it's out of obligation. It's out of a sense of duty that I have been doing these things, a sense of fear that if I don't do these things, God is going to be mad at me and smite me. Then in the words of this poet, lay your deadly doings down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Lay it all at Jesus' feet. Because it is all done for you. And enjoy the freedom that his heart gives to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your servant David, once prayed, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And Lord, you answered that prayer by sending your son, Jesus, who makes us clean and gives us a brand new heart. By faith, the beating, pure, righteous, and clean heart of Jesus is within every single one of us. And by faith, we can stand before you. It's all done. So remove from us the burdens, the guilts, the doings, and allow us that we can cast everything at your feet and rest beauty and peace of knowing that you have cleaned us from the inside out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.